Wow. I am uh, really grateful this morning for the songs that were selected and their focus on Christ, for the prayer that was offered, for the picture that was up here as we began communion. For those who put this worship service together, I appreciated the reverence as we have worshiped the Lord together. We'll continue now. I want to ask you this morning as we begin, what thought, not for verbal response, just think, what thought or what picture comes to mind when you hear the word intercede, intercessor, or intercession? Some people might think of some movie that they had seen perhaps where someone would intercede and step in front of a bullet for another. Some might think of a movie or something they've seen where somebody would take on a, a court case for another and speak on behalf of them. Or somebody who would take the place of another who does not deserve it, such as in a hostage or a prisoner type situation. Merriam-Webster defines the word intercede as to act between parties with a view to reconciliation. To act between parties with a view toward reconciliation or an end goal toward that. But in the scriptures, most of us of course would think of Jesus. In the scriptures, we see how Jesus entire purpose that is summed up in one passage, Jesus' entire purpose, what Jesus lives for, is to intercede for you and I. So I appreciate it so much, everything that we have sung and, and heard thus far this morning, talking about our Lord and Savior and His intercession. Every time that we sin, Jesus lives to intercede, and he's there to intercede before God for us, to plead our case, and to win by his blood on our behalf. Please open up your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 7, and we will read that passage. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to begin reading at verse 23, as we've talked about within the past week here, the book of Hebrews talks about how much better of a sacrifice and system we have than they had under the Old Covenant. And so within the context of that discussion, it says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 23, speaking of the Old Law, and there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. Under the Old Law, the priests, no matter how good they were, selected, appointed, they died eventually. But under the New Covenant, speaking of Christ, verse 24 says, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, for that reason, he is also able to save to the uttermost. I love that line. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save completely. Absolutely and forever. 
those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't Christ awesome? For such a high priest, one that is able to save to the uttermost, one that lives forever, for such a high priest, verse 26, was fitting for us, for you and me, because he is holy. It says he is harmless, but the word there might be better translated innocent in, in our vernacular, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Jesus, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He never has to do it again. He did it once for all. Once and for all time and once and for all people and once and for all sin, Jesus offered up his pure, undefiled, holy self. For the law, verse 28, appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Then the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to get this, so I'm going to summarize. Look what he says in the next two verses. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest. That's, that's right now, for you right now. We have such a high priest who is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. We have Jesus interceding for us this morning. Last week, last Lord's Day in the morning, we talked, we talked about the book of Ephesians. We talked about how God had a plan in place before the foundation of the world, before he ever created the world, before he ever created all the inhabitants of the world, before he ever created human beings, created them with a free will, knowing what they would do, knowing the sins that they would commit, he had a plan in place before he ever created us. Save us. And he knew within that plan the unspeakably, unbelievably high personal price that he, God, would have to pay. He knew beforehand. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew what it would cost to redeem his free will beings once they sinned and had forsaken all hope and all chance and all ability of ever being in his holy presence. He knew. As I said last week, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you have, doesn't matter what you've done. If you're of accountable age, as we refer to it, and you have sinned that first sin. You have no right to be in the presence of a sinless God. I don't either. None of us do. And so last week we spoke of that incredibly high cost that it would cost God to intercede for you and I. For yours and my soul, God would have to give Jesus Christ the crown jewel of heaven, the perfect, flawless, sinless Son. Subject him to unspeakable horror. One of the places that we looked, and I would ask you to turn with me there this morning, because this morning kind of flows out of last week's lesson, is Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
One of the places we looked at was Ephesians 2, but I want us to begin there with verse 1 this morning as well. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 and now verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul says, Amongst whom also we all once, he includes himself, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God interceded. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God could not stand the fact that even though we had fallen and we had sinned and we deserved never to be in his presence, God could not stand the fact that someone whom he loved so very much would have to spend eternity away from him, even though they deserved to because they weren't like him and they had sinned. And so God himself interceded, intervened in person, in the flesh, verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even then, even when we were totally unworthy to even be in his presence. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, that same grace, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 11. Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time, you were, at that time when, when you were dead in your sins, when you were separated from God by your sin, that first sin, when you were separated from God, you were without God, says in verse 11, uh, verse 12, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were hopeless. But the good news is in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, you, once, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Where would we be this morning? Any of us. But for the love of God. We'd be lost. We'd be hopeless. But that brings us back to that little phrase I want for us to examine at greater length this morning that's found in verse 4. There's a little phrase in verse 4 that's going to serve as the focus of the rest of this lesson this morning. It's a little tiny phrase, little two-word phrase, that indicates the incredible and all-powerful providence and intercession of our all-loving God who... who intervened and took what was an otherwise hopeless situation and made it the wonderful future that we have now. What is that little phrase? That little phrase is the first two words of verse 4. But God. Have you ever thought about that phrase? But God. <coughs> that phrase.
phrase is in so many beautiful passages in the scripture, and, it, and, and they quite often will show a mess that we've gotten ourselves into. But God rescued us. But God intervened. For example, Stephen uses that phrase in Acts. If you'll turn over there with me to the book of Acts in chapter 7, beginning at verse 9, we're going to focus on that little phrase, but God. There's so many situations that turn on that little phrase. Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 9, as Stephen is telling the history of the Jewish nation, it's God's Old Testament people. Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. He says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God, he, he was sold by his brothers into slavery. And it was this terrible thing. And he was taken away from his homeland. And we know the story of Joseph. And it, and it would have been this horrible, dead-end story. But God, was with him. That changes everything. That changes everything. God, but God was with him and delivered him out of 10% of his troubles. That's not what the scripture says, is it? But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and, as if that wasn't enough, gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Ain't God good? I want you to turn over to that story a little later on. Let's pick up where he reveals himself to his brothers, and we'll see that phrase again. Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Let's pick up the story there. And we'll notice that powerful little two-word phrase yet again. It changes everything, brethren. Genesis 45. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, so I'm going to read fast, lengthy reading. Stay with me. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph! Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. In his I'm guessing they probably were after what they did to him. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near, and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold in Egypt. But now, that's part of our phrase, but, but now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither planting, I'm sorry, neither plowing nor harvesting, and God. So we see part of the phrase in verse 5. We see the other part in verse 7. They're going to put it all together in a minute. Stay with me, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He said, now looking back, I can see. You thought you were doing this, but God sent me here to bless you. 
That's the whole, that's the way he's looking back. And sometimes when we're in our, we're in our, our jails, as it were, the way Joseph was in prison, and days are dark, and, and we can't see the way things are going to turn out. It's, it, it's hard to know, but we walk by faith, just like Joseph did. But God was with him. And he looks back at this point in his life, and he says, you know what? One you who sent me here. But God did it. But Joseph doesn't stop there. Look in Genesis 50. We see the phrase again. In Genesis chapter 50, beginning at verse 20, Joseph says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God... And sometimes we have to understand that when people do bad stuff to us, or they mistreat us, or they misrepresent us, or they, whatever it is that they do, and, and they seek to, to harm us or our reputation, God, can God still make all things work together for good? Does the Bible still say that in Romans 8 and verse 28? If your version doesn't, get a new version, because it's still there. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, don't be afraid, Joseph says. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And, be, and he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Maker, the children of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying. But God, don't, don't be dismayed that I'm dying. Because God's going to take care of you. I'm not, but God, what a powerful phrase. When God intercedes. And God takes these, these dark prison cells or these, these situations that we find ourselves in. And, and, and they may be awful and they hurt and we're all human and we all go through them. But God does some incredible stuff with all of that. And here's the thing, brethren, God's plans cannot be thwarted. I'm not going to turn to this particular passage, I'm just going to mention one verse, but God had a plan in place before the foundation of the world to bring the Messiah through the Davidic bloodline. Therefore, King Saul couldn't have caught David if he had wanted to. Because God was going to this predetermined plan. He was going to bring Jesus, the Messiah, through the bloodline of David. So David wasn't going to get killed before this all fit into God's plan. In second, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel 23, 14, it says, And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver David into his hands. Saul sought him every day, every day. He, he was consumed with catching David, but God took care of it. You'll turn to me in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles. I don't ever want you to read over that little phrase again without noting the power and without noting how God turns the darkest of days around with that one little phrase when God intercedes. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we have this story of this great multitude, this huge, vast multitude that's coming against God's people, and they are scared. You ever been scared? Scared of the future? Scared 
of the diagnosis, scared of what you believe is coming, they were scared. They were hopelessly and helplessly outnumbered. They had no chance. They were done. They were cooked. They were history. It's over. They're facing certain death. Even their king feared, and he, he set himself, therefore, to seek the Lord. Verse 3. Folks, why is it we wait until we're right on the brink sometimes to seek God? Why is it we wait till we're right, right at, at the end of our rope, hanging on by a strand and watching it rip before we go to God? Sometimes we do that. Well, they were scared, and they set themselves, even the king, to seek God. And Look what it says in 2 Chronicles 20, beginning at verse 12. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power. Have you ever had days where you felt powerless to deal with life? We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do. We got no power. We don't, we can't handle, we don't even know where to go. We don't know what steps to take. We don't know what to do. God, we're helpless here. But our eyes are upon you. What a beautiful Beautiful thing to say in that situation. Now all Judah, verse 13, with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said to them, Listen, all of you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Remember, they don't know what to do. They're hopeless. It's, it's terrifying. He says, don't be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. But God's. You, he says, tomorrow... Go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. That doesn't mean that they didn't have anything they needed to do. There's something they needed to do. They just didn't need to fight that battle. He says, position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. The battle was not theirs, but God's. Isn't it beautiful how that phrase, the Lord is with you, comes right after the phrase, but God? Same with Daniel. The Lord was with him, but God meant it for good. But you know what their responsibility was? Hold your position. Stand your ground. God doesn't tell them to retreat. God doesn't tell them to, to do anything like that. Sometimes we want to retreat. No, no. God says, you stand your ground. You hold your position. And God will take care of it. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And yes, I realize it has an S on it, but it works really well. In Psalm 73, if you'll turn over there, Probably there have been times, in some of our lives at least, if not all of them, where maybe, maybe we've looked around and thought life wasn't fair and people who do things crooked get away with everything and people that don't believe in God seem to prosper and all of that. Well, Asa had that problem in Psalm 73. Look at the first three verses. Asa says, 
Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is thinking about all these people who are doing ungodly things and how they seem to get away with it and even prosper. And so he goes on in the rest of this psalm, or at least in the next few verses, and he talks about that. Look down in verse 16. He's explained how they always seem to get away with it. He says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. And folks, this is something that we have to work on with our young people. Sometimes you look out there in that world, and it just seems like the, the quickest and easiest way to be prosperous and successful is to cut the corners the devil tells them to cut. And maybe even some of our young people and maybe some of our older people will envy some of those who seem to have, have everything made by doing it different than God said to do it. And Asaph had that problem and he says, but then I understood. When, when God showed me their end, he said, man, I was so sorry I envied them at all. Verse 21, he says, thus my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I was so stupid to even consider Asaph says, wanting to do it other than the way you wanted it done, God, after I saw what happens to those people. So he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Asaph got it straightened out. He says to God, you hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph then counts his blessings because he didn't go off with the wicked, even though he'd envied them momentarily. But he stuck with God. Look what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God, there's our phrase, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But God. The New Testament has occurrences of that phrase as well. Sometimes in the New Testament, that phrase, but God, has to do with warning. We see two of those in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 12 and Luke chapter 16. But it's also used in the sense of God interceding for us when life gets tough. <coughs> Turn to me to a very familiar passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, very familiar passage. Sometimes we don't use the whole passage, we just kind of chop it up, but... Hey, has anybody ever said to you, maybe a non-Christian, ever said to you, well, God won't allow you to be tempted more than you're able, right? Anybody ever heard, to, and they stop it right there? There's a lot more to that verse. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You've got to hang on to God and stick with God in order to find that way of escape because it's God that's providing it. So it's not like, well, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to be a Christian. I don't have to deal with God. God just won't allow me to be, be tempted beyond what I'm... That's not what it says. It says you stick with God, and God will make sure that you get through it. But notice our phrase is in there again, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. All of us are going to be tempted. All of us are going to be tempted. But God is faithful. You hang on to God, and God will carry you through. 
but God is faithful. What a beautiful phrase that is. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God, that phrase, but God is in our daily, everyday existence, but it also has to do with eternity. Turn to me in your Bible, Acts 13. The Apostle Paul has been preaching in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, relating the story of Israel's history in Acts chapter 13. And as he kind of hits the pinnacle of it, this is what he says in verses 26 through 30. Acts 13, beginning at verse 26, he kind of wraps up. He says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. He's been talking about Jesus. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in the tomb. This is what we've come to celebrate and focus on this morning. It's what we've focused on with our songs, with our prayers. So we've gathered around the table. But think what a dark and horrible, hopeless day it was when Peter and John and the women were aware that Jesus, their, their king, their Lord, he'd been crucified. He was dead. It's over. He's in the tomb. There was, there, was, there was darkness. There had to be darkness in their hearts and in their souls. Jesus is dead. He was nailed to a tree. They took him down. He was dead. They laid him in the tomb. What a horrible end to that story that would be if that were the whole story. But as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story, I know I'm dating myself. Did you see the next two words? But God, verse 30, raised him from the dead. But God, that, that is the centerpiece of our salvation. That is the focus of everything we do. That is the pinnacle of God's plan that he had in place before the foundation of the world. But God raised him. Without that, nothing else we do matters. But because of that, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But God raised him. What a powerful phrase. But God is. One other passage I want you to see this in is Romans chapter 5, a verse that we read last week, or a series of verses that we read last week. And I hope when you go through some of your valleys, when you go through some of those hard times, I hope that you will get into your Bible and that you will remember the power of that little phrase and how it changes every situation it's involved in. Romans 5, verse 6. We see our little phrase again. 
Romans 5, 6 through 9, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Maybe. But God. God didn't just tell you he loved you. That's a word we throw around a lot. I love you, I love you. I love, like I said in Bible class, I love chocolate, I love, you know, love my wife. It was different, but you know. God didn't just, is any, don't raise your hands. <laughs> Anybody ever said they loved you, but you really kind of knew they didn't because they really just didn't act like it? But God didn't just tell us. Look at that verse again. But God demonstrates. God says, I'm backing it up. <coughs> but God demonstrates. It says, his own love, his own brand, his own style, his own infinite sacrificial love toward us. Put your own name there. Toward you. In that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ did not die for us because we were good. Christ died for us because he is God. Did you catch that? He didn't die for us because we are good. He died for us because he is God. But there is one thing. But God, despite all the power and all the love he possesses, there's still one thing that God can't do. Well, there's several things he can't do, but there's one I want to focus on right now. The Bible says he can't lie, and we understand that. But God, despite all his love and power and greatness, is still limited in one area. He's limited by his own self-inflicted limitation. What is that? That God will not force any of his created free will beings to accept his love. He will not force us. He will not make us puppets because if he did, that would take away our free will. He will not force his free will creation to accept his love. No matter how much we celebrated around this table, no matter how much we saw the spikes and the crown of thorns, no matter how much we sing about it, no matter how awesome God is and how long the plan has been out there, God will not force us to accept that love. All he can say is, this is how much I love you. That is up to each one of us individually. In Romans chapter 6, please notice with me verses 16 through 18. But God will not take away our free will. Paul writes to the Church of Christ in first century Rome. Romans 6 and verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, notice you've got to do this yourself, yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether to sin, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Here's our phrase again. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Sure, our phrase, but God is in this passage. But God is to be thanked because they of their own free will had decided to obey from their hearts that form of doctrine which they were 
taught. And what was that form of doctrine? Well, he tells us right back in the first four verses of that chapter. They had to be baptized into Christ. They had to be, as, as he says there in verse 3, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. God's done everything for us. Everything. Except the one thing God will not do by his own self-imposed limitation. He will not make the choice for us. That is up to us. I do not know. Some of you, I don't even know your names yet, but I'm working on it. I do not know what struggles you have in your life this morning. But God does. I don't know what pain you have in your heart or what is straining your spirit this morning. But God does. I don't know I don't if you are not filled however with joy inexpressible this morning that the world can't take away from you no matter what it does to you I can't give it to you but God can wants to and died to. Maybe you're somebody here this morning. Maybe you've not done what they did. Maybe you've not obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. The Apostle Paul delivered according to Romans 6 and so many other places. Maybe you've never obeyed that form of doctrine by repenting of your sins and being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, just as it says in Acts 2 that we must do in order to be saved. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never thus become a child of God for whom Jesus lives to intercede and for whom he does intercede every time you sin. If that is the case, i got two words for you. <laughs> but God... But God gave his Son to intercede for you and to forgive you all of your sins if you will but trust him enough to repent and be baptized as he said you must. I have a question. If you do not have that joy or if you have not obeyed the gospel, would you do so now? 